Do you remember the taste of the last orange you ate? Do you remember the warmth of that welcoming cup of tea that you had when you came in from the cold November rain? Do you remember the smell of the hair of the first love that you kissed? Well, I'd like you to try and hold on to these sensations because I'm going to come back to them. Welcome back to the Machine Learning Street Talk YouTube channel and podcast with me, your host, Dr. Tim Scarf. If you want to be exposed to completely new ideas and challenged intellectually, then this episode is probably the episode for you. Last time we had a philosopher on the show, we had absolutely atrocious viewing numbers, but I'm a big believer that we need to be challenging our preconceptions on absolutely everything. Pedro Domingo said that there were only five tribes in artificial intelligence, and he didn't even consider the other tribe, which not many people talk about, cybernetics. Cybernetics is the science of communications and automatic control systems in both machines and living things. We're going to discuss AI across three key dimensions today. Computability, understanding and the phenomenological experience or consciousness. When we talk about artificial intelligence, what we basically mean is the science and engineering. We're trying to engineer machines to do things that we might say is clever. Professor Mark Bishop does not think that computers can be conscious or have phenomenological states of consciousness unless we're willing to accept panpsychism, which is the idea that mentality is fundamental and ubiquitous in the natural world, or put simply, that your goldfish, and everything else for that matter, has a mind. Panpsychism postulates that distinctions between intelligences are largely arbitrary. Mark's argument is distinct from Searle's argument that computers cannot understand, and also from Roger Penrose's view that some tasks which humans perform are simply non-computable. He thinks that there is no objective fact of the matter about which computations a physical system is computing. This is because of the observer-relative problem which Mark will outline in great detail in today's episode. Many of the ideas we're going to discuss today are anathema to the current modus operandi in artificial intelligence research. Just the reading list we got from Mark today will keep us busy for the next year. Mark's work in the philosophy of AI led to an influential critique of computational approaches to artificial intelligence through a thorough examination of John Searle's The Chinese Room Argument, and we'll be discussing that in great detail later. Mark is also the scientific advisor to Fact360, a startup deploying artificial intelligence using natural language processing for e-discovery or detecting malicious insiders by subtle changes in language in human communication networks, insiders who might pose a threat to your organization, and they use sophisticated graph analysis to do that. Mark just published a paper called Artificial Intelligence is Stupid and Causal Reasoning Won't Fix It. He makes it clear in this paper that, in his opinion, computers will never be able to compute everything, understand anything, or feel anything. For much of the 20th century, the dominant cognitive paradigm identified the mind with the brain. You, your joys, and your sorrows, your memories, and your ambitions, 
your sense of personal identity and free will are, in fact, no more than the behaviour of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. You're nothing but a pack of neurons. And that was according to Crick in 1994. The Church-Turing hypothesis stated that every function which would naturally be regarded as computable could be computed by the universal Turing machine. If only computers could adequately model the brain, then, the theory goes, it ought to be possible to program them to act like minds, with its myriad of features running the gamut from causal learning, reasoning and understanding. Even Bengio observed in 2019 that we know from prior experience which features are the salient features and that comes from a deep understanding of the structure of our world. The Church-Turing hypothesis has triggered an explosion of interest in biologically plausible neural networks. We had Dr. Simon Stringer on the show last week talking about the spiking dynamics, the temporal binding circuits which emerge when you create some of these biologically inspired neural networks. But I'm not just talking about the biologically inspired versions, even the relatively pedestrian vanilla neural networks that we all know and love on this channel. This has all been um, a huge focus point for the last 50 years or so. AI eschatologists like Ray Kurzweil and Nick Bostrom believe that there might be an intelligence explosion where all of humankind will inevitably be crushed like ants, although viewers of this channel will well know Francois Cholet's response to this view. Alan Turing deployed an effective method to play chess in 1948, many decades ago, but since then we've seen little progress in getting machines to actually, genuinely understand, to seamlessly apply knowledge from one domain into another. Judea Pearl believes that we won't succeed in realising strong AI until we can equip systems with a mastery of causation. He thinks we need to move away from simplistic probabilistic associations to machines which can reason causally. He even proposed a so-called ladder of causation, which is seeing, doing and imagining which I feel is almost self-explanatory actually. Unfortunately for Pearl, DeepMind have already demonstrated several times a reinforcement learning system which can perform causal reasoning and counterfactual analysis. Um, it seems obvious to me because if you're interacting with a system, then of course you can learn the causal factors. I completely take Pearl's point that with traditional machine learning where you're not interacting with a system, you can't learn any causal factors. That seems quite intuitive. Anyway, all of this is small fry compared to the point which Professor Bishop wants to make. The idea that these silicon ensconced algorithms can become thinking machines becomes a little bit bizarre once you realise that a machine has no choice in what it does. Computation is not an objective fact of the world, it's observer relative. Even Wittgenstein said that the meaning of a computation is in its use. He thought that understanding could not be a process and therefore it cannot be a process of symbol manipulation. Whether a given individual understands is often external to that individual. Mark's intuition is that evolution, autonomy and environmental interactions give rise to phenomenological consciousness. He thinks that we cannot live inside a computer simulation because he can feel the sensation of cool air on his face. 
So Mark thinks that the meaning of computation becomes relative and lies in its use by humans. Mark gives several examples in the show this evening demonstrating precisely why he thinks this. So I think Mark's main contribution is this dancing with pixies reductio ad absurdum. He quotes Hilary Putnam. In 1988, the influential American philosopher Hilary Putnam published a paper in which she showed that under the influence of gravitational waves and cosmic rays, the subatomic particles that make up all the objects of our world, your seat, the seat you're sitting on, the very clothes you're wearing, the room that we're in, they're all containing a rich dance of subatomic particles, a dance that never repeats itself. And Putnam realized that this is analogous to a, a state machine going through an infinite series of non-repeating states. So it then seems to me that if a computer, a terminator perhaps, is conscious purely as a result of moving through series of computational state transitions, then if I know the input to that machine with input fixed, I can generate exactly the same series of state transitions with any large counter like a car's marlometer or following Hillary Putnam's move with any open physical system. So if a machine is conscious merely as a result of following some computation, then consciousness is everywhere. In the bricks of this building, the clothes that you're wearing, the very seat you're sitting on, they are all experiencing the zing of that orange, the warmth of that cup of tea, and the memory of your first love's kiss. If machine consciousness is possible, everything, even the smallest grain of sand, is filled with an infinitude of conscious experiences. Bishop interprets Putnam's result to mean that computationalism demands that every physical system is host to a multitude of conscious minds, which he refers to as little pixies. Since a computationalist believes that to be a conscious mind is just to implement the right kind of computation, not only would we be surrounded by pixies, but the vast majority of conscious experience would be realized in these pixies. Since any physical system is implementing any and all computations simultaneously, then all possible conscious minds must be instantiated simultaneously in every physical object. For Bishop, this is the most patently absurd manifestation of panpsychism and thus demonstrates that computationalism must be false. So it seems like a contrarian position that Bishop is saying that computation is very much in the eye of the beholder, whereas most of us think that computation goes on inside our brains. Anyway, the key takeaway from the Dancing with Pixies reductio ad absurdum is that computation doesn't have those phenomenological conscious states. A finite state automata cannot give rise to conscious experience unless conscious experience is in everything. Bishop says that he's an embodied entity, which is to say he's not just thinking in his brain, he thinks with his body and his body in the world. In today's episode, we also talk about some of the greats of computability, mathematics and logic, starting with Alan Turing on computability. He described a machine called a discrete state machine. I now call it Turing's discrete state machine because that was the first time I read about it in his work. So over any short time period, 
We can replicate the behaviour, the different state transitions of Turing's discrete state machine with any other one, such as a digital myelometer. But because when we added input, the number of possible state sequences grew exponentially, we can't easily do the same thing when you have a machine with input. But then I realised, if I know the input to one of these machines, that combinatorial state structure collapses again just to a simple list of state transitions. He invented this interesting thought experiment called the discrete state machine and he had this physicalist desire to explain all of humanity via a computer program. And interesting, what he learned later on in his career about the non-computability of numbers led to a significant amount of tension for him later on in life and, and his children. The American philosopher John Searle was so exasperated that anyone might seriously entertain the idea that computational systems, purely based on the execution of appropriate software, no matter how complex, might actually understand. It was, it was ridiculous. He formulated the now infamous Chinese room experiment. And we'll go into this in some detail in the show, but essentially he said that syntax is not sufficient for semantics and that programs are not formal and minds have content. Therefore, programs are not minds and computationalism must be false. Now, most of the Chinese room argument is the first proposition, which is that syntax is not sufficient for semantics and we will come back to that later. Another interesting character is Gödel. Gödel's first incompleteness theorem famously stated that any effectively generated theory capable of expressing elementary arithmetic cannot be both consistent and complete. In particular, for any consistent effectively generated formal theory, F, that proves certain basic arithmetic truths there is an arithmetic statement that is true, but not provable in the theory. And this can be used almost anywhere, and it's often referred to as the Gödel sentence for a particular theory. And it was used in anger by Roger Penrose. He made the Gödelian argument that mathematical insight cannot be computable. He said that the mental procedures whereby mathematicians arrive at their judgments of truth are not simply rooted in the procedures of some specific formal system. And he followed up by saying, human mathematicians are not using a knowably sound argument to ascertain mathematical truth. Anyway, I really hope you enjoy the show today. I'm absolutely honoured that Mark came on to discuss this with us. I'm, I'm very interested in the philosophy of AI and the philosophy of mind. Um, make sure you read some of the material that Mark has signposted and I'll link those in the description. Remember to like, comment and subscribe and we'll see you back next week. Welcome back to the Machine Learning Street Talk YouTube channel and podcast with my two compadres, MIT PhD, Dr. Keith Duggar and Alex Bayesian Stenlake. Now, um, today we are speaking with Mark J. Bishop, Professor Emeritus of Cognitive Computing at Goldsmiths, University of London. Mark is interested in the philosophy of mind and artificial intelligence. Sorry, that's my Siri. It seems to be very interested in getting involved in this conversation. Mark is interested. Now it's playing music. Because Sorry. AI is stupid. That's why. AI is really, really stupid. And actually, that's a, a great segue for our conversation today because Mark, our guest today, also thinks that AI is really, really stupid. But anyway, Mark is interested in the philosophy of mind and artificial intelligence and rails against what he calls computationalism. We'll get to that in a sec. Uh, machine consciousness and panpsychism.
In 2010, Mark was elected to the Chair of Artificial Intelligence and Simulation of Behaviour, which is the world's oldest AI society. He's been invited to advise on policy at the UN, the EC and also the UK government. He's published three academic books, 200 articles and won £3 million worth of research funding. He serves as the associate editor of nine international journals and his research has spanned the practice and theory of artificial intelligence. He's regularly asked to uh, comment on AGI, particularly in, in response to these AI eschatologists. Of course, we were speaking about this a few weeks ago. So folks like Hawkins and, and Musk and Kurzweil, uh, who warn of an existential threat of an intelligence explosion. Now, in one of uh, Mark's recent papers, he concluded that cognitivism, which is the whole idea of viewing the brain as a computer, and its concomitant computational theory of mind, is inappropriate. And instead, we should emphasize the role of foundational processes such as autonomy, exploration, autopiosis. Now, that's a strange word as well, isn't it? So that means um, a system capable of reproducing and maintaining itself by creating its own parts and eventually uh, further, further components. Um, and social embeddedness in giving rise to a genuine understanding of our lived world. So in summary, Mark thinks that computational theories of mind cannot explain human cognition. He thinks that the claims of its researchers that, you know, genuine conscious mental states can emerge purely in virtue of carrying out a specific series of computations. He thinks that those claims are egregious. Now, I discovered Mark about a few months ago because he's published this paper called Artificial Intelligence is Stupid and Causal Reasoning Won't uh, Fix It. It's actually a really cool paper because it's a tour de force of all of the computational and philosophical issues surrounding AI at the moment. And he kind of kicks off in the paper by saying that AI is a brand tag, it's becoming ubiquitous. But a, a corollary of this is that there's widespread commercial deployments where AI gets things wrong, whether it's autonomous vehicle crashes or chatbots being racist or automated credit scorings, uh, you know, processes discriminating on gender. And of course, we have a whole load of people saying that we can improve it. So Judea Pearl and Gary Marcus, they say that deep learning is just curve fitting. It's just reasoning by association. And, uh, you know, if only we could build computer systems that um, took things a step further and, and thought about time and space and causality. But Mark takes the AI skepticism to a whole new level because he thinks that machines cannot and will never understand anything. Professor Mark Bishop, welcome to the show. In your paper, you talk about crick and you talk about church and, and yeah. Turing giving rise to computationalism. What, what, what do those folks say? Well, in my paper, I start, I start off with the idea that it's become known as uh, Francis Crick's astonishing hypothesis that uh, you and everything that we are is defined by um, the set of particular set of neural firing patterns at any one instance. And if we take, run with that idea to its logical conclusion, it would seem to be that if we have an appropriately high fidelity simulation of just the brain, we abstract from the brain, we're from all the dirty chemicals, the, uh, the, the um, neurotransmitters, the serotonins and the like, we abstract away from all that and just look at the neural firings, we've got everything, everything else drops out for free. And a lot of people surprisingly buy into this uh, uh, to this idea, and in fact, it's one of the uh, uh, one of the hypotheses that, that that pushed the Human Brain Project and one of the biggest European Union um, funding uh, grants of all time a few years ago. It was over a billion, if I remember rightly, led by Henri Macron, and that courted a lot of controversy with some people saying the EU is putting a lot of its eggs in one basket and. Uh, uh, a lot of people had doubts as to how much real science that program would um, 
would deliver. And as it happened, I had a very interesting um, presentation to the group, uh, the Living Brain Project group, a number of years ago, um, because I was arguing, um, as Tim outlined in the introduction, that um, we were not likely to get conscious states. And in fact, I think there are good a priori arguments for believing we won't get conscious states out of any computational simulation, no matter what that simulation is, no matter how fast it is, or no matter what algorithm it is, unless we have to bite the bullet and we accept a very vicious form of panpsychism, the idea that conscious phenomenal states are living in everything. The very cup of tea, of coffee that I'm drinking at the moment has its own mental states. and. As someone likes to pin my colours to the scientific mask, I find it somewhat implausible to believe that my cup of coffee is is conscious of me drinking it. Uh, and so we're led to re to reject that horn. And if we reject the horn of uh, uh, panpsychism, then unfortunately we're led to, in my opinion, we're led to reject the idea that the mere execution of a computer program can bring forth conscious states. So that's kind of, in a nutshell, uh, the uh, the executive summary, if you like, of. Um, an argument I described as dancing with pixies um, that purports to show that uh, unless we're willing to accept panpsychism, computers will never have phenomenal states of consciousness. Now, that is a distinct argument from the argument that people like Searle makes that says computers can't understand. And it's also distinct from people like Penrose, who say there are certain um, things that people can do. And Penrose very famously talks about mathematical insight that are fundamentally non-computable. So it's my own minor contribution to the debate. And that is, I don't believe that computers can be conscious unless we're willing to accept a very nasty form of panpsychism. So I think some of that impulse, right, to uh, break things down, you know, and to find the absolute minimum component that can implement everything the human i mean that's a very western kind of analytic you know scientific approach to start with and so if we don't want to throw out analytics as a whole like in what gap or or let's say what do we need to add to kind of artificial neurons if you will in order to um uh, or even to the com the computational paradigm itself so what do we need to add to say the turing machine or lambda calculus you know concept in order to be able to create consciousness what's missing unfold hugely complicated stories as you can imagine uh, and I'm hoping that at some point in time we'll get to go into we'll engage in a little bit more depth on on what the dances with pixies reductio actually says because otherwise it just sounds like a, a an airy hands-waving philosophical statement that I'm making and it might be quite interesting to go into the nuts and bolts of why I believe that argument works but to come back to Keith's point um, <clears throat> Right. Many people, I think, working in the field uh, as a young teenager uh, back in the 70s, I taught myself to program and I had an unhealthy interest in science fiction. And you put those two things together and you're led to the uh, belief that I had very strongly as a teenager that we would build thinking conscious machines and that one day they would uh, they would come to tyrannize mankind and, and enslave us and go on to be the next stage of evolution, if you like. I'm, I'm not alone in that. I'm sure many people have had similar, entertained similar fantasies. And it wasn't until I went to university, in fact, my choice of degree at university was informed by these uh, uh, these interests of mine, peculiar interests of a teenage male. And I went to read cybernetics at the University of Reading. Uh, it was the only place in the UK where you could read cybernetics at the time. And that was a great uh, education, not least as some of the people, my tutor, for example, Alex Andrews was one of the, was an early, 
first round neural net pioneer from the sort of 40s and 50s and, and famously gave a couple of great papers at the mechanization of thought conference that people like Minsky and Rosenblatt were all at. So I was surrounded by old school academics who were from that first wave of, new, uh, of people working in neural networks and that was a really interesting place to work. One of the guys that taught us, um, Savnet is kind of an engineering and it touches on all sorts of things, but it works sort in the UK is very much an engineering discipline. And so one of the things we had to do from year one was build computers, but not perhaps as you might think of building a computer, are you going and getting a board <laughs> and putting a few chips in perhaps, but literally starting out with TTL and building your own half adder, building your own address decoders and building literally a computer from individual TTL chips. And once you've done that, you get a very low level, but real engineering perspective of what's going on in a computer. Uh, you don't tend to think anything too fancy. The idea that these things are thinking machines start to become a bit bizarre um, because you realize the machine has no choice in what it does. If I, if I imagine like a balance, a ruler on a pivot that's balanced and press the ruler down one side, the other side comes up. It can't do anything but that. And when you see that the <clears throat> operation of the logic gates in the computer work in exactly the same way, uh, that seems to be a very different mode of opera operation to that which we're used to entertaining when we think about human cognition. That said, all those thoughts were further down the intellectual line for me. When I was engaging as an undergraduate, I was just interested in building these things. And I guess it wasn't until my third year, uh, I was doing a joint degree in cybernetics and computer science. And then one of my lecturers in computer science was a guy who went on to be professor of theoretical computing at Oxford, a guy called Richard Bird, and he introduced me to the notion of Turing non-computability. And, um, <clears throat> and also introduced me to Gerd Lesher-Bach, but that's another tale, a very interesting book, which I'm sure you're all very familiar with. And uh, that was quite an intellectual shock, because prior to doing that course, I'd had this sort of, a, I was a very modest young man, and I had this idea that you give me a problem, and enough time and I'll, I'll boss you out a computer program that will solve it. And the idea that there could be problems that were fundamentally non-computable was, was a shock. Uh, and it took a while for that shock to actually seep in. I, I was a bit skeptical, even though I knew what to write to get a reasonable mark in the exam. I, I can't say my heart was completely wedded to the notion of, of non-computability, not least because the proofs of these are kind of weird as well when you get into them. There's lots of self-reference and things, and they seem a bit sort of bizarre. They did to me as a young undergraduate. Anyway. But then Roger Penrose, when I came back to the read from PhD at Reading, um, I was lucky to meet Roger Penrose uh, just around the time he was publishing um, The Emperor's uh, New Mind, or just before that time. And we got chatting and I realized that my intuitions about the horror that non-computability might pose were being echoed by someone who was even at that time known as being a bit of a polymath, the guy that taught Stephen Hawkins amongst other things and worked with him. And the fact that this guy was also echoing some serious reservations that were based on Gerdelian ideas and based on chewing on computability stuck a chord with me. But the real big intellectual shock to my, uh, again, I started out with a PhD in neural networks with the intention of building a thinking, living, breathing, conscious machine. Uh, and then over that period of doing that PhD, my position changed 180 degrees. So after meeting Penrose, the next big thing was I went to a conference at Oxford in 19, uh, God, when would it be? It was around the time that uh, parallel distributed processing first came out and Rummel Hart McClellan came over for the first time in the UK to describe back props. So this is how long ago it is. I'm 
really quite old school in all these things. So yeah, it was the first presentation about proccing at Oxford. And it's a massive conference. There was, you know, it was a sellout conference to the main room, which probably held about seven, eight hundred was sold out. And they had two overspill theatres. We were in the second of these overspill theatres with video links to the main stage. And we heard these presentations about proc, which is all very exciting. But the thing that blew my mind, having been brought up in an engineering discipline, cybernetics, was listening to two philosophers because that was quite odd. And the two philosophers were Denner and Searle. And I'd never heard a presentation like it because unlike the sort of kind of measured, dry presentations of how to control the server mechanism or a new algorithm for quicksort or whatever the hell it happens to be in our computer science and engineering presentations, I soon learned that philosophers argue in a much more fisticuff kind of way. And it, it, was, it was a shock. Um, uh, but also very engaging, and uh, and so I came across you know Searle describing his Chinese room argument, which resonated with me at the time, and and hearing Dennett um, poo poo this uh, at the time in in his own unique way, and um, so around that time in my thesis, I began to uh, entertain, began to question where I was going. Am I and am I team and are people are other people in the world who are, who are doing exciting things with neural networks? Are we going to build these thinking machines? And uh, gradually over the, that time and in the few years that followed, uh, I reversed that opinion. And the core intuition that drove all that, I guess, really was Searle's Chinese room argument. Now, I think you'll find a lot of sympathy. Uh, a lot of people that actually work, you know, very close to the AI or, you know, what's referred to as AI when we're trying to sell things, um, you know, we'll raise an eyebrow in skepticism because, you know, we know GPT is just a big pile of linear algebra. Uh, you know, the, the talk about the transformational effects really come from the business side. You're among good company here. <laughs> but to kind of go back, you said you wanted to touch on this dancing with pixies. Yeah argument that you raised earlier and this kind of links into the the notions of panpsychism and how this relates to um you know if you if you want to take the idea that a, a computer can be intelligent that it can think that it can understand things then you end up concluding that anything can kind of have this you run us through the like very briefly people haven't read the paper panpsychism yeah. argument the dancing with pixies fallacy and kind of like how this all kind of flows into the conclusion that computers cannot be intelligent. Yeah. One of the axioms in which this argument is built is the idea that computation is not an objective fact of the world. It's observer relative. And so I first of all want to give you a couple of examples that I think will underscore that axiom one, because a lot of people would reject that. It's a nonsense. Computation, what a computer does is a fact of the matter. So again, I'll go back to my undergraduate days when we had to build um, before we used TTL, we literally had to build these logical gates out of transistors. <laughs> so it doesn't get much more basic than that. So imagine you've built some, uh, a set of transistors to perform the following uh, electronic logic. You have two inputs to the circuit and one output. Call the inputs A and B and the output O. Uh, if both inputs uh, A and B are zero volts, the output is zero volts. If A is 5 volts and B is 0, the output is 0. If A is 0 volts and B is 5, the output is 0. If both A and B are 5 volts, the output is 5 volts. What logical function, guys, is that performing? And? You might be right. 
It's performing AND if we assume that 0 volts is false and 5 volts is true. Now, if I tell you that you are actually wrong in your assumption that 0 volts was true and 5 volts was false, what logical function is that performing? NAND. Oh, who remembers their boolean? There we go. <laughs> oh, that's right. It's performing an OR. So in other words, the computational function this bit of electronics is doing is contingent on the, on the observer relative mapping between the electronics and the world. Right? If I use a, a 0 volts false 5 volts true mapping, it does an AND. If I use the inverse of that, it's doing an OR. Like you cannot tell a Martian from planet Mong couldn't look at that and say, that's an AND gate, that's an OR gate, without knowing that mapping. And that mapping is subjective. I might have one mapping, Alex might have another, Keith might have another one. In fact, a, a, a great uh, uh, Israeli uh, computer scientist, Oren Shigri, extends this argument pathologically and looks at multi-level logics, and the problem gets really weird if you go down that route. But I'll just stick to the simple case with the AND and the OR function. So that's one of the reason why I said, fundamentally, I mean, it seems to be just axiomatic. I'm just baffled when people tell me this is not the case, but I still occasionally meet people who dispute this. So there's a second follow-through argument. And it's, it's built on the work of uh, uh, Winograd and Flores in their book, Understanding Computers and Cognition. When they start to think about what is a, world, a word processor, and I've reframed their argument a little, and I think about what is a chess program. I don't know that any of you guys are old enough to remember in the 70s, we used to have these little chess, plastic chess computers that were square, and they had little holes on a, on a bit of board, and little tiny little plastic, plastic chess pieces, and the light, when you made your move, you lifted the piece up and plonked it where you wanted to go, and then the computer would light up the piece you had to move and where that was to go. Using one of these gadgets, you could, I could quite happily play, I'm not very good chess player, so I could happily get thrashed by these machines day in, day out, and, and, and enjoy that thrashing, so to say, so to speak. And you, I could argue that I could use that piece of computational equipment to play chess with. Now, in the UK, there's, there's a famous conceptual artist by the name of Tracy Emin who does a lot of work with neons. I don't know whether you guys have heard, come across her work at all. And also in the 60s, there was a big movement in what's called kinetic art where you're, and cybernetic art, where people interacted with art pieces. So now, what unbeknownst to me, Tracy's sabotaged my chess computer. She's ripped the innards out, and she's now wired all the inputs to pressure pads in an art exhibition, in an art gallery, and all the outputs to neon strips. So when people walk over uh, these pressure pads, different neon lights come on and off. Now, there was no sense that you can possibly, it seems to me, that you could possibly say that when I walk around the art gallery, I'm playing chess. I'm interacting with a bizarre piece of abstract art. Certainly not playing chess. <clears throat> so it doesn't seem to me there's anything intrinsically chess-like in this device. Yes, it was engineered very carefully so that I, if I knew what I was doing, I could play chess with it, but I could use it in other ways as well. Um, and the problem gets even worse if you've come across isomorphic games. Um, let's imagine, we probably already know, noughts and crosses. Now, uh, imagine you've got a, um, a noughts and crosses game on your, on your iPhone, and you've got, a, like I have, a six-year-old daughter who's just, just about got her head around noughts and crosses. I can keep her occupied for a, 
I was going to say half an hour, that'd be an exaggeration, for five minutes, say, giving you this thing and she'll play noughts and crosses happily again. And she says, oh, Daddy, I'm bored. What am I going to do? I say, ah, well, I've got another game I can show you. But she says, Daddy, you've only got one game on a computer, so I'm going to play it against the computer. She says, don't worry about that. We've got the noughts and crosses. I've got another game. I'm going to call it um, Computer Whist. Now, imagine you lay the, car, the, the deck of cards out, ace through to... No, uh, nine and you we take it in turns to pick cards from this deck the winner is the first person who can get 15 get cards to sum to 15. it transpires that if you've got a program that can play noughts and crosses with a suitable mapping you can get it to play a perfect game of computer whist so we're given the grid it's like a magic square where all the uh, verticals horizontals and diagonals add up to 15 right you then plot your computer go, it's marking a one square, and choose your go. You can tell you which card to pick next, and you can play a perfect game of computer whist. So I can use that same computer program with my mapping to play a perfect game of computer whist. So you cannot say in advance without knowing what I'm going to do with that program, whether I'm going to play tic-tac-toe or computer whist. So I think those three arguments together make, to me, a persuasive case to paraphrase Wittgenstein, that the meaning of a computation is in its use by human computer users. The phrase, that, as you, I'm sure you're all aware from Wittgenstein, I'm paraphrasing, is one of the investigations where it makes the claim that the meaning of a word is its use in, by human players with human language games. And I think the same applies to computation. The meaning of a computation lies in its use that we as human uh, users of computers put that to. So that's, the, that's kind of setting the stage. So I think there's always going to be this mapping at the physical level, and then there's always the idea of what we're going to use a computation to do, and that's a very social human activity. So that's setting the stage where I want to go with advancing the pixies. Now, the next move I make, and I know you'll have all have read Computing Machinery and Intelligence, Turing's famous 1950 paper. Uh, uh, everyone's at least looked through this. And well, Turing first outlined the Turing test, what became known as the Turing test. Also in that paper, he outlines the operation of a very simple machine, Turing's discrete state machine, as it became known. And this is a, a beautifully simple machine. It's a disk-like device, and it can go around in 120-degree intervals, and it can stop at the 12 o'clock, the 8 p.m., and the 4 p.m. position as it moves around uh, a clock, and it can exist in each one of those discrete positions. And... <clears throat> We can describe that the operation of that machine as a, as a um, finite state automaton. If the machine's in state A, the next clock tick is going to go to B. If it's at B, the next clock tick is going to go to C. And if it's at C, it'll go back to A again. <clears throat> now, if we want to, we can um, arrange that when the machine's in computational state A, it will do something. When it's in computational state B, it'll do something. Turing envisaged it when it's in computational state A, a light would come on. You also imagine there being simple input to the machine, like a big lever-brake mechanism that you could have on or off. So if the machine was in state A and the brake was on, it would remain in state A. If the brake's off, it would go to state B. One of the first interesting things, that we, again, like computation, you see the comp when you've given a Turing discrete state machine, to read off the computational state ABC, we need a mapping between the physical position of the lever machine and the computational state to which it refers. So we may define computational state A to be the 12 o'clock position, in which case when the lever's there, we're in A, or we may say it's at B, and the rest thing follows through. But we always need that 
that mapping. We've always got to do these mappings between the physics of what's going on and the computational state that we're instantiating. So now we've got this machine. <coughs> uh, without the break, it just goes to A, B, A, B, C, A, B, C, A, B, C, A, B, C. Uh, and that's interesting enough. If you're in interested in inputless finite state automata, they're not very exciting machines. All they can do, go, do is go through a cyclic series of states forever in an unbranching series of state transitions. Well, what is interesting is that uh, in, in the appendix to Hillary Putnam's representation of reality is a, is a little known proof. This shows how we can effectively how we can map the operation of any uh, um, inputless finite state automata onto a large digital counter. Actually, Putnam goes further and, and shows how we can map it onto the opera onto any open physical system, an open physical system being a physical system that's open to gravitational waves and all the rest of it, um, electromagnetic spectrum impinging onto it. But for simplicity, let's just consider the, without lots of generality, let's just imagine we can map the operation of any inputless FSA onto a bloody large uh, digital counter. How does Putnam do that? Well, let's take Turing's machine. He just says, if the computation is in state A, I'm going to map that to the digital counter state 0, 0, 0. If it's in state B, I'll map that to counter state 1. If it's in state computational state C, I'll map that to counter state 2. And then the A again will go to 3, the B again will go to 4, the C again will go to 5. And then we get over any finite time period, we can replicate the state transitions of our digital uh, uh, discrete state machine by the numbers of, uh, that we're cycling through on our digital counter. And again, you might answer, so so what? That, uh, um, that doesn't seem a particularly threatening result for computationalism at first sight, because real computations are much more complex devices than inputless finite state automata. Well, in, uh, in a paper called Does a Rock Implement Every inputless finite state automata, David Chalmers responds to this argument in, in an interesting way. And uh, he says that, yeah, I'll concede, if you like, that we can implement really trivial machines like inputless finite state automata using Putnam's mapping. But when we want to look at machines with input, this breaks down because we get a combinatorial explosion of states that we need. And Chalmers introduces a very neat uh, construction called the combinatorial state automata which we can implement using Putnam's mapping, but at a, an exponential increase in the number of states that we need. And the combinatorial state automata is sensitive to initial conditions. And so could be genuinely said, if we could implement it, we've had enough states to implement it, could generally be said to be implementing a computation with input. But at the cost of every time step of the computational, you need an exponent, you, you, your number of states grows exponentially. And Chalmers makes the point that after a very short number of states will run out of the number of states needed is bigger than the number of atoms in the known universe and hence Putnam's mapping must fail. And that's kind of where I entered the debate because I made a, an incredibly trivial, uh, all, the, all the hard work had been done long before I came to play with this game, so to speak. But my only trivial uh, modification to Putnam's argument that to me makes it robust to Chalmers it says, is to say this, well, if we look at a any real machine of which it's claimed has genuine mental states, conscious states, as it interacts with the world. And this, this intuition was brought real for me because, again, some people dispute the fact there are people who believe that there are serious scientists who believe in the machine consciousness program. There definitely are. 
Um, and I used to, my head of department was at Reading Cybernetics was one of those people, a guy called Kevin Warwick. And we at Reading had built these little simple uh, robots that moved around a corral controlled by a neural network. And Kevin said, well, these got roughly the same number of neurons as a slug, and it's pure human bias if you say a slug has conscious experience and these robots didn't. And I thought that was a ludicrous uh, claim, and that inspired me to move and develop this uh, Dancing with Pixies Reductio. So to come back to the case, I said, right then, Kevin, if you say your robot, as it moves around the corral over a finite time window, T1 to TK, experience is something that it is like to be a robot bumbling around a corral, not bumbling into things. I don't know what that is, but let's just imagine it has some conscious experience. What I, what I can do is log all the inputs to that machine, and then I'll play them back to them. So I now lifted the robot out of the corral. I've disconnected all its uh, uh, sensors, if you like, and actuators, and I'm just injecting into the robot the, the states it would have got where it whizzing around the corral on its own. Test to go and does the machine still have conscious states? Well, yeah, of course it has. It's, it's reading the numbers from a latch. The, number, the, the data was originally taken from an A to D converter, for argument's sake. We're now plonking that data in there from a, from a data injection system. But the computer still has the phenomenal states, so, so Kevin Warwick asserted. And that, unfortunately, led to the problem that he was going to encounter, because if that was the case, all that we're really interested, we can take, we can collapse the exponentially growing number of states that Chalmers showed we would have if we actually want to implement fully all aspects of a computation using Putnam's mapping. If we just try to look at the particular computational trace, we just need the inputs to that machine that pertain to any over time as the machine did its little thing. And then we can remove all the counterfactual states. And once we've done that, we've got a linear series of state transitions that we can reliably map using Putnam's mapping. And hence, if it's the case that Kevin Warwick's little robot was conscious, then so must our counter be conscious. And then after Putnam, any open physical system. So that, in a nutshell, is, is the DWP reductio. It's interesting that in all these seminal debates to me about AI, about Penrose, about Searle, and about my own small contribution, there's a lot of confusion. People can very easily misinterpret what's being said. A lot of people got hung up about, does a rock genuinely implement a computation? You know, and I think, to me, Chalmers completely proved that it does not, right? No problem with that. Does, can we make a rock with a suitable mapping implement an arbitrary series of state transitions? Yes, I think we can. And I think we can make any counter do that. And because we always use a mapping, whatever system we use, I don't think I'm doing anything. There's no sleight of hand involved here. Because all computational systems involve an observer relative mapping somewhere along the line to get them to work, whether it's only assigning a logical true to 5 volts and a logical false to 0 volts. So I don't think the use of a mapping is something that, you know, there's no sleight of hand involved in that, given that I can use an arbitrary complex series of state transitions. So then the question is, <clears throat> If you're a physicalist, and I approach this problem originally as someone who, you know, I like to think of myself as if I'm not a mysterious, I don't want to appeal to some supernatural forces to bring forth my consciousness. And you know, at one point in time, it was the case that, well, if you don't believe in functionalism or computationalism, then you've got to believe in supernatural effects. Well, that is no longer the case. Cognitive science has moved on a lot since the 1960s. There's an awful lot of new tools in town. And these are really exciting tools, in my, my view. And you, 
uh, highlighted a few in the introduction, Tim, but things like the embodied, inactive, embedded and ecological approaches can go a long way to answering or giving us insights into these questions without having to bring forth particularly supernatural notions. So I'm going to put that to one side. We don't, we're no longer faced with a, a choice of either accept computationalism or accept mysterism. Putnam's Rock, I mean, there's a lot of interesting responses to it, but I want to yeah. point out a couple of things or maybe just ask you about a couple of things. So one thing is that uh, first, I, I think what your goal is, and correct me if I'm wrong with the, the pixie, dancing with pixies argument, is to say simply that if we accept, um, uh, say, Turing complete computation, or I, even in this case, finite state machines, but I think we can probably go one step further. If we accept that effectively computable systems can implement consciousness, then we also have to accept uh, panpsychism, correct? That, that's that's what I, I, I tried to show. Right. Um, because once you have a system that you that you claim, like my boss Kevin said, that machine is conscious. Right. I can look at what happens as that machine interacts with the world. I can right. log all the inputs to it. I can trace the flow of the execution flow of that of the machine code that controls the robot. And then I can implement that, uh, 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 an arbitrary series of state transitions that's that would do exactly that with an appropriate mapping with a digital, mere digital counter. Correct. So if yep. that machine is conscious, then my digital counter would plus this mapping must be conscious. Right. So that's the position I arrived at. Now, when I'm chatting to David Chalmers about this, he said, oh, no, 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 Matt, you, you've gone off the road because we need the full potential of the computation to be there for functionalism to hold. Now, this is quite a mysterious view. In fact, it was so mysterious that when he first said it, he had to repeat it about three times because I'm not the quickest at uptake and I found it so bloody bizarre what he was saying. But when I did unpick what he was saying, for Chalmers, you actually need, uh, once you effectively slice off the potential counterfactual actions by saying, well, I know the input at this point in time, I know the input at that, I'm going to replace the counterfactuals in my program by direct go-to statements, if you like, or just just omit, snip them from the from the program. To me, that couldn't possibly affect the phenomenal state of the system because otherwise you're saying that non-entered branches of a computer program right. have a causal effect on the phenomenal state of your machine. But the bizarre thing is, that's what David's saying. He said, no, no, mate, that's well, it. You, you've got to have the potential for counterfactuals there, otherwise we don't have... Phenom we don't have the machine genuinely instantiating phenomenal states. So if we just if we just assume in arguendo that people don't or that we don't accept panpsychism, okay, and that and that that these arguments prove that if we accept computationalism, it implies you know panpsychism, okay. Uh, we also have mathematical results that say, um, let's say Turing computation or effective computation encompasses all computation. Like there is no, you know, there is no other kind of computation unless there's hyper computation, right? And so I think what we're saying, I, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe what we're saying is that there exists hyper computation and that human minds are performing hyper computation. So just, just take this back to the rock for a second. Right. One issue with that mapping, right, is that rocks actually have physical states that may be real numbers. You know, they, they may have values that in and of themselves are not computable. You know, they, they can have positions and states and quantum states that, that have values that are essentially defined by mm. an infinite precision real number and therefore are not even accessible to computability to start with, like even describably, right? So are we saying, because I'm always looking for where consciousness is hiding, if you will. Like, are we saying that it's hiding in 
sort of real valued states, you know, maybe quantum states like Penrose would say, perhaps in microtubules or something like that. Mm. You know, is that is that a form of hypercomputation and is that where our consciousness derives from? Where do we draw the dividing line? Because that's something that that's like I've read quite a few of your papers in preparation as you do when you're going to speak with someone. Um, and this dividing line where we go from, you know, computational and essentially impossibly into like impossible to achieve intelligence or understanding or any measure thereof to the point where we have an in, an intelligent system that can understand its world and and sort of redefine itself and redefine its world um that distinction is is not terribly clear and i as we dive into this question i want to drive towards where this distinction lies if this distinction exists well to pick up on keith's point first i think I'm, I'm, I'm neutral. I mean, Penrose has given a positive thesis as well as a negative one. So famously in The Emperor's New Mind, he gives, he gives, he gives his first version of a Gödelian argument that purports to show that mathematical insight is non-computable and then says, well, this suggests to me that non-computability lies at the heart of what it is to be human. And then with Stuart Hamroff, they outline a positive thesis which, which purports to show that non-computability can arise in the brain through the orchestrated collapse, quantum collapse in the microtubule skeleton of, of brain neurons. I'm apps neutral on this. I know that when Penrose held a psych symposium on his work uh, in 1995, and it attracted a lot of responses, well over 20, if I remember rightly, and I don't think any of his logical work was seriously brought into question. So the that is his interpretation, even though that was actually a naive interpretation of Gödel compared to the work that he put out in Shadows of the Mind, which is a much more nuanced uh, uh, approach to the argument, in my opinion. But nonetheless, it wasn't seriously criticised. Nearly everybody criticised his positive thesis. So I, I'm, I, yeah, Penrose is a clever guy. It seems interesting. I'm not going to hang my colours onto that flag in particular. If it works, great. But I'm, I've been more drawn to modern approaches to cognitive science, which look at, uh, at the end. And you know, there isn't unfortunately a very quick six-page paper that can can lead people gently into this. But there are four schools. And all this work really started out with the work of a roboticist from MIT called Rodney Brooks, who wrote a classical paper, which I guess you guys are familiar with, called Intelligence Without Representation, which basically looked at you. Instead of trying to, when I did robotics, old-fashioned, old-school representational robotics as a young postgrad, a lot of our work was trying to build, take data from sensors and build rich internal models of an out-there world. And I remember we, we spent all our budget on buying this biggest, fattest computers we could possibly afford at the time and strapping them onto these poor little autonomous vehicles and they were laden down with computer power and they moved absolutely tragically slowly. We're going back in the in the early 90s now, but they were, they were pathetically slow things, you know, really embarrassingly bad. Um, because a lot of their work was trying to build up these models, looking at, well, trying to build models of them. Now, I know that these days we can do that kind of thing bloody quickly, but back in the day you couldn't. And and Brooks thought, well, do we need to do it? And in that paper, he argued that we didn't. Why build a representation? We can use the world as its own representation. And it, in, in a sense, that sort of paved the way for thinkers like um, uh, Francisco Varela, then in a book called The Embodied Mind with Evan Thompson and, and Eleanor Roche, to, to start thinking about different ways of doing cognitive science. And, and The Embodied Mind is a mind-blowing book. It's, a, it's quite a, 
uh, it throws your your whole view. In the same, in a in a in an analogous way to Girdle Park can be quite mind blowing as a as a young kid. This is mind blowing as well, but in a in a kind of a weirder way because it actually questions the existence of a fixed pre-given out there world, and that was quite a shock to me when I first came across these ideas, not being a trained continental philosopher. That my first mode of engagement was with Varela, who incidentally started out as a theoretical biologist and then someone very active in the A-Life community. So I think his initial work has also been from a sciencey perspective, but he engaged quite deeply with uh, with the European philosophy, which which at that point in my life I was uh, totally ignorant of. And so this led to a development of alternative schools of what cognition is all about. And the inactive school is one that I'm interested in. And it says that, you know, um, effectively we can look at one sort of, the inactive school itself is these days split into numerous sub approaches. Uh, one of these from uh, developed by a guy called Kevin O'Regan and Alvinelli argue that uh, visual consciousness is something that we do. So they're moving away from the idea that vision is like interpreting like your eye getting a scene from the world and your brain having some little like uh, uh, um, cinema which you're then interpreting what all these little bits do they make the case that the vision is more akin to an activity is what we do it's it's guided sensory motor exploration of the world rather itself was particularly interested in uh, brought bringing in ideas of autonomy how, how can how can things become meaningful there's all these very complicated debates that I think to try and come back to your question, Keith, and your question, Alex, we, we, you need to touch on, but it's really challenging to, to touch sure. on them in, a, in an intelligible way in a in relatively short period of time. You would you would at least agree, though, that um, you know your contribution, Penrose, et cetera, points very strongly that there's something embodied, there's something physical that we haven't quite figured out yet. Maybe it's microtubules, maybe it's something else. You're agnostic to that. But there's something physical that allows... My, my intuition is to do with autonomy. Uh, and this is why we bring the idea of autopoiesis in that Tim mentioned at the beginning. Autopoiesis is, a, again, a, in the 70s, Umberto Maturana, the Chilean side musicians, Umberto Maturana and Francisco Varela came up with a theoretical device for delineating life from non-life. Because astonishingly, this has been a really difficult problem. You'd think it was probably solved 100 years ago. It hasn't been. And mm -hmm. even as recently as when Margaret Bowden was writing on this, one school tried to say life is and then give enumerated a list of properties. It has to metabolize. It has to reproduce, blah, de, blah, de, blah. Vera Maturana looked at it from a different perspective. Well, what fundamentally life is a system that has a circular organization. It's got to be able to maintain its own boundary of itself and the other, and it has to encapsulate the rules, the autobiotic rules that maintain that boundary yeah. in the face of a, of a changing environment. We spoke to um, uh, uh, Friston, Carl Friston, quite recently, yep. and he was talking about Markov blankets, which is quite interesting about how do you define the the boundaries of a physical system? And, you know, does a hurricane have a Markov boundary? And, and what we're talking about here in a very general sense is defining boundaries between what lives and what doesn't live and yep. what is meaning and what isn't meaning and what is understanding and what isn't understanding. And it's very philosophical. It's quite difficult to pin this down. If you look at uh, Maturana and Varela's book, it's about 60 pages, their original treatment, uh, Autopresis and Cognition from, from the 70s, and it is very dense. It's, 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 it's not a waffly philosophical book. It's quite hardcore and quite mathematical. Yeah, I think they, they do do an interesting job at pinning down uh, what, uh, 
if you like, what it might be for something to be alive. Um, and this has been this challenge, which was explored in in the embodied mind, has since been developed by Evan Thompson, who's a uh, an American philo American, but uh, uh, an interesting philosopher who wrote a book called Mind in Life, where uh, the argument is laid out that there's a, that life is a continuum, and wherever you have you uh, uh, this continuum of life, then you have a proto mentality. Uh, and I'm kind of drawn to that. I think it's a very persuasive argument. And um, then you, we have to look at the question of what constitutes autonomous systems and what, why should it matter if an autonomous system has a phenomenal sense of what it is like to be. Um, and here, if you like, we can link into the work of a guy I've just recently come across who wrote to me a few weeks ago. Uh, he used to run a big lab in France, AI lab in France. Michael Trouble, I think his, his, his name is. And he... He argues that we need phenomenal consciousness to uh, arbitrate between uh, different actions. If you're sending a robot to a Mars, that's got to be completely autonomous and it's got to react appropriately in different in, in, in unknown environments to all sorts of different threats. Effectively, the robot's got to have to know something in its a state that it's good to be that makes the robot feel pleasant and a state that's horrible, it's danger that might cause death to the robot. It has to we use the phenomenal sense of what that feels like. We can then use that to arbitrate between different actions. And this is actually, by the way, is an idea that was brought I first came across through a paper by Daniel Dennett called Cognitive Wheels, the Frame Problem of AI, when he looks at what must be known to us to arbitrate on what he called the cookie problem. Imagine you've got a big jar of cookies and some little kids like my six-year-old daughter and in, in two families one next to each other and in one family when the child goes for a cookie the family beats it smacks it relentlessly until it's in tears and never goes it doesn't have any more cookies after that and the other one they, they're very sort of touchy feeling oh no please don't have another cookie tarquin and occasionally tarquin does go and have another cookie then it asks the question why is it that beating the kid causes that child not to go for the cookie jar anymore. And we know that, well, because being beaten is something deeply unpleasant. And uh, you don't particularly, unless you're a masochist, want to do things that are going to bring this feeling of pain about you. But then Dennis said, well, how do we know that? We can, we can, we can arbitrarily hardwire such facts in. So I could hardwire into my computer program if something else biffs me, then I'm going to increase my pain by one. And if pain gets over a certain threshold, I won't do that action again. And that's incredibly brittle. And it's literally arbitrary. But unless we have phenomenality, unless we have access to phenomenal states and know that getting biffed hurts or going over rough terrain, if you're a marching robot, shakes you around a bit, you, you have to just sidestep that by hard wiring effectively, hard coding, us as engineers, the system is no longer autonomous now, we're having to define what it has to do for all these different possible states. That's the price we have to pay. So I think you could argue that evolution has, has, has blessed us with phenomenal consciousness so that we can act autonomously. And that's the way that, I guess, after Evan Thompson and Varela and Turbele, the view that I, I, I come to. So we need consciousness to, to enable us to succeed evolutionarily. Well, haven't we just fallen foul of the, first, the kind of prime axiom of software engineering at this point that, you know, every problem is just a level of abstraction away? 
because I mean we could you know um, I forget which paper it was you, you had a really great uh, conclusion in one of your papers where you essentially said if we built a bunch of robots that looked and behaved just like us they're automata they they laugh at our jokes they respond but the thing that defines like the difference here or the difference between us and them would be that you know when when we're laughing and feeling we feel it it's phenomenological when they do it it's not it's a simulation but you know uh, leading into this argument it's like well to have these martian robots that have autonomy and can succeed they need to have this phenomenological state isn't mm. this isn't this really just a software engineering problem away no, from being solved I, I i think when i wrote that paper i was i mean it's only very recently literally and i i want to i'm hoping to to work or at least to reach out to Mikhail to see if we can do something together. So I'm quite excited by these essays he's sent me. I think they make up as, I don't know why, it just hadn't occurred to me that this could be a reason why consciousness has, has evolved. He makes a very persuasive case. I'd love to claim it as my idea, but it absolutely isn't. But I think it's a very beautiful one. I need to understand more and, and either he will publish it or perhaps he might do something together, I don't know. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I'm, I'm a little bit sceptical that, that without that, the glue of consciousness that we could get a machine to act as a simulacrum of you in all possible cases. Um, I was arguing from the stronger, I guess, in that paper. So, well, let's just assume that we can. I think engineering-wise, I'm a little bit sceptical now, following Mikhail's work, that that is going to be possible. But also to come back to another point uh, that relates to the are we going to talk about the Chinese room at all, or are you assuming that's boring for all your readers? No, no, I, I think that's one of the most important things because uh, because we're, yeah. we're we're talking now about you know consciousness and the various different kind of uh, boundaries between what is and what is not consciousness. But I think the other one that's really important is understanding and the boundaries between what is and what isn't understanding. You say in one of your papers, what does it mean for a central processing unit to understand? Does it understand the program and its variables in a manner analogous to Searle's understanding of this rule book? But this cells rule book thing right it describes a procedure as you say in one of your papers that if carried out accordingly um, allows cell to participate in an exchange of uninterrupted symbols squiggles and squoggles which to an outside observer look as if cell is accurately responding in chinese to questions in chinese about stories in chinese in other words it appears as if cell in following his rule book actually understands chinese even though cell trenchantly continues to insist that he does not understand a word of the language so this has been used I think very reliably and you had a paper actually recently introducing a couple of other responses because there were four responses to Searle's argument right there was the robot reply the systems reply the brain simulator reply the combination reply and in, in your recent paper you talked about um, robots and animats. In the target BBS article there was a lot more than four. Searle when he wrote the paper came up with four possible counter arguments which are the classic ones that Tim just outlined but from memory, there must have been over 20 people, really big names in philosophy and AI, who responded to that BBS Target article. People like Marvin Minsky, McCarthy, uh, Denner, obviously. Uh, God, I can't, I'm ashamed to say I've forgotten, but they're, 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 they're big, big names uh, who wrote different responses. There's a lot more than the four that so. But I mention these because what's been bizarre, having uh, I edited, today with John Preston, we edited a, uh, on the 20th, 21st anniversary of the Chinese Room argument, John Preston and I put together an edited collection of, of responses to it 20 year on years on from leading AI scientists, cognitive scientists and philosophers. 
and I still think that's a good collection of essays uh, that we that we picked there, and good collection of people to contribute to that volume. And um, again, in the intervening years between this Chinese Room argument coming out and that volume coming out, and then between that volume coming out in 2002 and, two, and now, really, and I've talked about this in, as you can imagine, uh, in many places, most of the UK universities and quite a few in, in Europe and one or two in America, and nearly all the, the most formidable responses that I've come across really go back to responses that Searle actually predicted. And by far the most common and probably the most, I think the strongest response is, is some variant on what became known as the systems reply that you, uh, that you mentioned, Tim. Can you just quickly define what the systems reply is? Do you mind if I just, just go over again, as you went over really, really quickly, the essence of the argument, but I'd like just to sort of unpack it slightly more slowly. So Searle, imagine, Searle, to set the scene, Searle's a monoglot English speaker, the only, uh, shamefully like myself, shamefully because I'm married to a Greek lady, I still can pretty well only communicate in English at best. And um, Searle can as well. So he imagines himself locked in a room, and uh, this room has got effectively got a letterbox instead of a door, to which he can communicate uh, with the outside world. And in the room are three piles of papers. And on these papers are strange symbols that Searle doesn't know what they are. We know, there's re people reading about the experiment, hearing about it, that these are actually Chinese ideographs. But to Searle, they're just uninterpreted squiggles and squabbles. You've got no idea what they are. So you've got these three piles of things. And on the desk, there's a big grimoire, a book that tells Searle how to correlate symbols from the first pile with symbols on the second. And then other rules that tell him how to correlate symbols on the first pile and with the second pile and also linking symbols on the third pile. And other rules that tell him how to take symbols from one of these piles and stick them to people uh, uh, through their throats to the outside world. Well, unbeknownst to Searle, the first pile defines a, a script uh, second uh, in Chinese, the second pile describes a story in Chinese, and the third pile describes questions about that story in Chinese, and the symbol Searle was told by the book to give to people in the outside world uh, answers to questions to that story in Chinese. And Searle's point is that if we concede, so he's arguing again from the strongest, it says, okay, let's concede, but that rule book, however it's defined, and again, a lot of people got home because they thought Searle was purely talking about a naive pattern matching program. If this symbol doesn't then do that. Actually, Searle makes it clear, if you read the paper carefully, that he wants this to stand for any conceivable computer program. This was the first reaction that I had. I had an allergic reaction to it because, as we know from talking to Wally Tsubba, you know, that we can't write the damn compiler for, for language. It's too complicated. So, um, it, 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 it's not possible really for even us to explicitly understand and verbalize the rules that we use in language and you said yourself that artificial intelligence practitioners were incredulous at the extremely kind of you know simplistic mm -hmm. uh, view of, of Searle that you could have this um, uh, you know low level rules described. Yeah but I mean if that's because they didn't read the paper carefully because <laughs> Searle makes it absolutely explicit that he generalizes he gives a, a simple example to sort of just get you thinking about the problems and imagine because again so this is the world that you know some people have tried to do language interpret uh, understanding in this very naive way but Searle wants the uh, thought of it to stand for any possible program all we're doing is the rule book tells Searle how to manipulate uninterpreted symbols and put uninterpreted symbols out of the door 
uh, how it does that, whether it's implementing a neural network, whether it's implementing a genetic algorithm, whether it's implementing Walid Sabah's uh, uh, sense-based word to vector sense-based worst effect, compositional understanding, natural language understanding, whether it's doing uh, uh, GPT-3 kind of operations, it's irrelevant. Searle says, whatever your program is, that's what's in the book. Uh, and at the end of the day, that program will tell me how to respond to questions in Chinese with answers in Chinese if I follow that program uh, carefully and don't make any mistakes. I'll give answers out the door. And if your program's any good, it will give answers that are indistinguishable from those in natural a native-speaking Chinese person would give, even though, as Searle transiently insists, I, following this program has not enabled me to get even a toehold in Chinese semantics. Right. All I've been doing is like a, a mega-fast idiot savant manipulating uninterpreted symbols around and sticking some symbols that I don't know what the hell they are through a letterbox in and out to the outside world. Does that imply, then, that it's just observationally impossible to determine whether a black box is conscious? Well, this is a, I wrote a, a, a counter argument to Susan Schneider, I can't pronounce the name, probably Susan Schneider's uh, uh, Turing test for machine consciousness, why I make that exact claim. Um, you know, uh, this was in Frontiers in uh, Robotics, or uh, one of the Frontiers journals a couple of years ago. Um, because Susan says, oh, we can ask, her idea is we, if we ask, questions that are about particularly human activities relating to phenomenal experience will be able to tell whether this machine is, uh, she gives a, a procedure um, for doing this. I would say, well, just whatever set of questions, Susan, you have for deciding whether your machine's conscious, I'm going to sit unbeknownst to you and watch you ask them. I'm then going to go away and write a little program in basic, because I'm good at writing in basic, that says, if question one says, blah de blah de blah i.e. Susan's first question, give this answer, which is the answer that a really complicated machine consciousness program gave. So in fact, I have a lookup table. But of course, Susan doesn't know, because I sneakily switched the machine. So she asks her questions, thinking she's talking to a really complicated machine consciousness thing. She asks the questions which she claims will tell her whether this machine is conscious, but she's actually just interrogating with a really simple lookup thing. And at the end, it gives her the answers she wants. Yep, yeah, that's conscious, but she's just been talking to a lookup table. It's, yeah, I, I think that you're quite right, Keith. I think it isn't obvious to me how we're going to be able to do a test for machine consciousness purely on the basis of external observation in the absence of anything else, because we can, if we're Machiavellian, we can always uh, cheat. The thing is, when you were talking about it doesn't have semantics, I want to unpick that a little bit as well, because you, you said the, the robot rover on Mars, uh, the, the semantics there were, were the, the state spaces of all of the sensory experiences, and then you said it's brittle and there's an alignment problem, and, and I can understand that, it's very similar to the, the AI alignment argument, but this is different, this, if, if, you, if you can replicate let's say you're talking to a black box and you can't distinguish whether or not um, it has consciousness or whether it has understanding. Why, why is there an issue with semantics in that case? Huh, you're wrong footing it. I thought you were going to say, how can I tell that anybody understands or is conscious, which is actually one of the core uh, responses that so um, uh, anticipated in the Chinese room argument. <laughs> that, that is that, actually that, that is the, the obvious sheet. question as well. Like, presumably uh, the, the, you the, think that we yeah. are conscious. Because we might exist in a computer simulation, right? Uh, well, I, I don't think we can, because I don't. I, I know that if I slap my face, it hurts, right? And I, yet I know 
that machines can't instantiate phenomenal consciousness. I made a paper called uh, Refu Refuting Digital Ontology, uh, just after a, an invited talk at the Royal Society uh, workshop on the incomputable, hosted by Barry Cooper, who was the leader of the Turing Centenary celebrations in the UK and worldwide. And um, I made this very argument then that I don't, it isn't obvious to me. Well, I think that it's clearly obvious to me that we're not in a computer simulation because I feel. And if my dancing with pixels reductio argument is correct, unless I'm willing to accept panpsychism, then compute computations can't realize sensation. So either my dancing with pixels reductio is wrong, in which case I'm very, I'll be sad, but in the other sense I'll be happy when you show me where I'm going wrong. Um, or if I'm right, then we're not living in a computer simulation. So I, I don't think we are in computer simulations. Furthermore, it's an axiom of cognitive science that other minds exist. You, you know, uh, so it's not for me to have to explain why I believe that you three guys have phenomenal conscious states. I, that's part of cognitive science is, is acknowledging that you do and trying to come up with a theory that explains why these occur and how they occur. The conscious state argument to kind of perhaps play devil's advocate a bit here. Um, to me, when I first came across the dancing with pixies argument, this wasn't an argument that for me implied rocks had understanding or intelligence to me it implied that that we we don't there's nothing that that has intelligence or understanding right what, what the intuition i'm wanting you to come to is that computation doesn't have those phenomenal consciousness states i actually the argument again interesting what a reviewer said this of one version I think of the 2009 cognitive computing paper. Aren't you arguing too strongly? How going to, doesn't this prove that nothing can have consciousness? No, it doesn't. It just says that the uh, the operation of a com digital computer, a finite state automata, to be uh, to pin it down more precisely, cannot give rise to conscious experience unless conscious experience is in everything. That's all it says. Now, if you don't bite the bullet and say, well, actually, I think I'm more than a finite state automaton. Thank you very much, Alex. There's more to me. I'm an embodied entity. What, I, I don't just think in my brain. I think with my body and my body in the world. And again, there's a beautiful result that came from a guy. And I, I'm going to argue, there's a professor at Goldsmiths, and I'm going to take his work and, and extend it probably in ways that he, he would be uncomfortable. So this is my interpretation of work that's published in a number of papers in Nature by Jules Davidov on colour perception by the Himba tribe uh, in his work in Africa. Uh, I'll just describe this beautiful experiment because I would argue Jules is a very cautious academic and he doesn't make wild proclamations that I'm more comfortable doing, <laughs> uh, the, uh, uh, looking at his work. But basically, Jules did this beautiful uh, set of experiments over a long period of time working with the Himba tribe in Africa on colour perception. And when I first saw them, again, they blew my mind because they basically appear to support the idea to me that language informs the, not just the way that we package the world, the way that we label it, that's kind of obvious, but the way that we see the world. So how did Jules's work show this? Well, he took a series of colour slides, like Munsell colour slides, if you're familiar with these, well-precise uh, blocks of colour, and on one piece of paper for argument's sake there were different shades of yellow and another one there for argument's sake there were different shades of green all equally the difference between one side and the next with the same color differences but uniformly so they went from like a dark green if you like to a light green or whatever the 
uniform colour differences in each, each one of the slides. And um, on the sort of ochre yellowy one, uh, if you showed that to Europeans, said, which is the odd one out? If you looked really carefully, not always, but often you'd say the one at the two o'clock position. But it took you a lot of time, and you literally had to, in your mind's eye, compare all the slides with each other. And if you were lucky, you said, yeah, it was that one. But I, I've done this test, and sometimes I don't even see it myself. It doesn't jump out. It's not obvious. It doesn't pop out. And some of the times I make that decision wrongly. Now, you show that to the Himba, and they sort of smile, go, bang, it's the two o'clock one. Immediately, no cognitive process, it leaps out at them. And then we get the, the green ones. Now, on the green ones, there's a blues tile. So they show that to Europeans. What's the odd one now? The blue one. Show that to the Himba, and the guy's got a stick, and he's rubbing his head and rubbing his imaginary beard, and I can't work it out. Now, when you look at that from a, lingu a Western linguistic perspective, how can the person not see the blue one is the odd one out? Well, it turns transpired the Himba got very restricted or very limited colour vocabulary compared to Europeans. And no doubt if you took someone from the Himba and threw them into London for, after a, a period of time, there they would perceive the blue pop out in meat just as quickly as we do. It's nothing to do with the Himba's colour system. It's an effect brought on by language. But to me, why, what makes this really powerful is that it's a pop out effect, right? The Himba immediately get the one that's the coloured boundary that's important to them pops out to them because they've got a name for it and it's a I can't remember what it was now, whatever name was, it's an important thing and it pops out at them straight away. For us, the blue-green colour boundaries are important and that pops out to us straight away. And that, because it's a pop-out effect, that says that it's, to me, it's actually what it is like to see the slide. The Himba cannot possibly be seeing green and blue in the way that I am. Otherwise, the blue presumably would pop out of them because it, they must be seeing something bloody weird, but not they aren't seeing those green and blue tiles like I am in their mind's eye, for want of a better word. Um, and similarly, when we look at these sort of ochre yellow ones, they must be seeing that quite differently from me, because I can't tell the odd one out reliably and quickly in the way that they can. Now, I think this gives us very strong evidence to me, or at least this is the way that, that I would like to use Jules's work, and I must underscore that I don't think he would be comfortable with any of this, but this is the way that I like to use it, to say that, that, you know, that the language is actually affecting how we see the world. So when I say that our understanding of the world, it's not, just, it's not just what's going on in the brain. The brain is instrumental to how we see and perceive and interact with the world. But it's not just that, it's our entire body and also the body in the environment and also within a social network of language users. And all these things come together to enable us to form perceptions of what it's like to see and what it's like to speak. So the idea that we could just reduce this to mere neural firings or even worse, just some bloody manipulation of symbols by a computer is just ludicrous as far as I'm yeah. concerned. I, I can see the, the logical thought train here. So you're, you're saying Jules said that language informs the way we see the world. You know, one, one potential problem uh, with that... That's my interpretation on well, his work. That, that's fine, yeah. that's fine. But I, I suppose where I'm going with this is that it, it, it does. it's starting to get towards this very kind of ultra-relativist, constructivist view of the world. And I, I want to put an anchor. The reason why it's interesting is when you're talking about um, sensory states, 
that it doesn't actually seem like such a bad thing because everything you're saying there completely makes sense. Of, of course, depending on where you are in the world and, and, your, and your language and so on, you, you might have very, very different sensory states and you might experience color differently. But, but then there, there's, there's like a, a topology, isn't there? So then you start getting into um, understanding and, and semantics, right? And, and then you start getting into knowledge and truth. And at some point, you know, people might start to disagree with you that, that, that mm. we should have a kind of um, ultra relativist view on, on what informs those things. So where yeah. do you draw the line there? Right. Well, I've, one of the lovely things about being an academic is that you get to work with some clever people. I'm not clever, but I've been blessed by working with a number of people who bloody well are. And um, at the moment, I've got a, a, a postgrad who's who's mind boggling. I, I like to say I supervise and it's the other way around. We're going for a discussion and I come out feeling I've had my mind blown away and, and, and he's sitting there looking quite chuffed with how the way the discussion's gone. Now his particular thesis has raised some really interesting questions and he runs with this very postmodern ideas in extremis. And I, I and on one particular uh, uh, C vision money we were I'm diabetic and 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 he was trying to make out or he could give me this argument where my my diabetic was just an enactment of a certain practice and I said that's nonsense I'll die if I don't do this how can you say like, you know the cell car thing uh, the cell car conspiracy or you know if I if I leap off a tall building I'm going to bloody well die it's not a social concert this um but anyway um, Paolo's work is, is very, very nuanced and he does make some radical claims. When you make radical claims, you've got to be very, very, very careful about how you use the language. So um, I'm certainly not going to try and paraphrase his thesis in, in five minutes on here because it's an incredibly nuanced piece of work. But I just want to take one aspect from it that I think is interesting because I think it reflects on the world that we're living in now and gives us an insight, if it's possible insight, into how Trumpism and the echo chamber culture has taken root. Because Paolo, and I'm not saying I completely go along with this, I'm just trying to re re report this as best I can from our discussions. Paolo thinks that we don't just have uh, epistemic perspectives on a universally shared world. We Each of us ontologically can have our own distinct ontologies. And why does that matter? Well, if it matters, says Paolo, if you start looking at how this is reflected on, on, on Twitter, if you have a community of people, and one of my other postcards, a guy called Chris DeMaio, wrote, uh, did a film called Right Between Your Ears, which I can't recommend highly enough, looking at an end of the world documentary, full-length documentary feature on, on the end of the world cult, on an end of the world cult in America and how these guys were saying they'd read in the Bible, the world's going to end on a certain day, and of course it didn't, and how they then dealt with that, and then the leaders, oh, it's going to end again in six months' time, and yet again it didn't. And Chris's film was just looking at how people can arrive at these surreal beliefs. And I think there's something akin to that with the QAnon movement, and you had this idea that you know somehow Trump was going to lead and the result was going to be overturned, and then it wasn't, well, something else is going to happen. You're thinking, if you're not in that, how can people have these bizarre ideas? Well, how would I argue that if you get in a community of like-minded people, if we go back to our basic philosophy and don't buy into a correspondence theory of truth so much as a coherence theory of truth, where a proposition is true because it coheres and, in the, and with the body of other propositions that you take to be true, when you're interacting on a daily basis with people in your Facebook bubble who all share the same beliefs that to us outside that bubble look bloody bizarre, 
they're reinforcing this thing. So your view of the world, your ontological view of the world becomes really real. You're drawn into this. And that's why people get so aggressive about it, because it's not, as an academic might abstractly discuss the truth or falsity of, I don't know, uh, Newton's laws of motion or something. This is what the world is. You're questioning something fundamental about these people's experience of the world. We've, we've kind of covered a couple of big names tonight. We've had Turing come up and Searle. Uh, the other big name that's kind of been floating in the background is Gödel in, in terms of like Gödel, Escher, Bach, the, the famous book on human creativity. And uh, you kind of point to the Gödelian, we'll skip the other guys, but like the Gödelian argument against the possibility of machine intelligence. Just for, for the guys out there that kind of want to get a bit of a, a grounding on why his name's been coming up so much, can you kind of just give us a very brief primer on um, how... Gödelian incomputability kind of relates to the impossibility of machine intelligence and how that kind of ties into the other arguments we've been hearing tonight. Yeah. Um, I think in the archive paper, which you guys, I think, helpfully signposted at the beginning, uh, um, artificial intelligence is stupid. There's a, as best as I can give it, a, uh, a one-paragraph summary uh, in mathematical form of the Gödelian argument. And I don't think it'd be helpful to go through that line by line now. If your viewers are interested, I refer them to the detail that's in that paper. But to just sort of talk at a slightly more abstract, uh, wider view, um, I think, yeah, I'm sure Gödel and Turing uh, were both aware of the implications uh, of their work on uh, uh, on logic in Gödel's case and on computability in Turing's case. And in fact, there's, there are some people who think for Turing and possibly for Gödel as well, but uh, some people have made the claim that this disconnect between Turing's avowedly physicalist desire to explain all of human mentality uh, via a computer program, plus what he'd learned professionally about the existence of non-computable numbers led to a big tension in Turing's life. Um, and there's a, a documentary uh, that's looked at uh, dangerous ideas, I think it was called, that explored Gödel, Turing and Cantor in that context of people who came up with ideas in their own work that challenged intuitions they had about the world. But coming on to Gödel, although I'm, I'm, I feel certain that Gödel and Turing had both in their mind gone through the implications of their work, as far as I know, one of the first times where this this was actually cashed out in terms of an academic paper was by the Oxford philosopher John Lucas in a series of exchanges with another philosopher called Paul Benekaraf in the 60s, where to cut to the chase, uh, I think that Lucas's argument is much more uh, blunderbuss and less sophisticated than Penrose's version of this. So I commend anyone interested to look at shadows of the mind rather than go back to Lucas. But Lucas basically says for any any consistent uh, mathematical system, there will be sentences in that system that we outside of it can see to be true, the Gödel sentence of that system, but which we can prove can never be shown to be true by that system unless the system is inconsistent. And <clears throat> so that Lucas says, you know, you give me any any version of, 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 of computation that you like, uh, I can, I as a human can step outside of that and see things about that computational system that it provably cannot know for itself. Uh, and that's, I think, the first place where this argument sort of took off. Um, Penrose's own 
take on this is a little bit more nuanced. He likes to imagine looking at, uh, in Shadows of the Mind, he looks at uh, computations of one parameter uh, and looks at the question of whether that, he looks at the halting problem, effectively, if you're familiar with that, on a function of one variable and asks, can, you know, is there a set of rules that will allow us to, deter, to tell of any function of one parameter whether that function is computable or non-computable? And he shows how that leads to a contradiction. Uh, in the, and if we follow the, the lines of the proof, we see that there comes to a point where we see that a particular statement on the operation of computation k, given k as input, uh, we can see something about that computation that it cannot possibly terminate, that cannot be shown to be true following the rules of that system itself. And I think that's an, an interesting uh, an argument. And as I said, I'm not it seems to me when I've read commentaries on Penrose, most people have criticized his, his speculations on quantum physics rather than what he has to say about Gerdlian logic. And in fact, Gert Penrose was famously invited to give the keynote at the centenary, at the Vienna conference, which was honoring Gerdl for the centenary. So I think if there was some school by error, because you occasionally meet people say, oh, Penrose is wrong. And uh, uh, I think that Penrose is not stupid. And I think if there was a school by error in his work, I, 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 I would like to think you'd have probably found it by now. But I can recall when I was at the University of Reading having an immensely long exchange with someone about Penrose's ideas. I won't name them, but they were at the University of Sussex. And after this had gone on for months and months and months, and I was saying, look, look at this, look at this, look at this paper. And in the end, the guy turns back to me and said, life's too short to waste it reading what Penrose actually wrote. And I, I've come across this so often, people think they know what Penrose has said, or they think they know that Searle's read, and they haven't bothered looking at the source material on either. And I, yeah, this is an issue that comes up time and time again. And, and that, 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 that was quite a shock to me there when this guy did eventually concede that he hadn't actually read Penrose at that point in time. I hope he has now, but he hadn't then. Fantastic. Well, um... Professor Bishop, it's been an absolute pleasure. Honestly, thank you so much for, for joining us today. And um, I, I hope to get you back on the show soon. Well, thank you. I, I really, I can't, I seem to be very rambly and unfocused discussion. I'm, I dread to Not think so. how you're going to get something interesting out of all this, but that's your genius behind the editing machine, I feel. I, I, yeah, I, uh, yeah. I, hope it, I hope it comes over okay. No, honestly, it's absolutely fascinating. And I think we don't really have much of an opportunity to um, talk about philosophy of mind and talk about some of these deeper issues in AI. And I think this is a really fascinating framework, actually, to think about some of the various different focus points. I mean, you know, we had Pedro Domingos on last week talking about the yeah, five tribes that. of AI. That was, that was awesome. I really enjoyed that. And that paper, I read the paper that you foregrounded and also watched the little video you, uh, that you did accompanying it. And, um, yeah, I thought that was a really interesting uh, deeply interesting paper. Effectively, you know, I'm making the case that any that, that any gradient descent trained neural networks doing nothing more than a lookup table, interpolating between its training points, effectively, which is a profound uh, statement. And uh, I need to let the dust settle over that. But it, that was yeah, brilliant. I, if nothing else, I mean, yeah, reading that was a great it thing for engaging with you guys. It's good for deflating some of the deep learning hype too, just to kind of like contextualize. But all, like also with with regards to the night, you've fleshed out probably ten people's reading lists or, pe <laughs> or people's um, reading lists for the next sort of ten years. 
Um, I, I wouldn't worry too much about rambling. All that means is that, is that there's a lot of ground to cover and not a lot of time to cover it in. This, this is the reason why I invited you on because a lot of these things are very impenetrable. And when I read your paper, it's like a Google Maps kind of point by point stepping stones list of all of the all of the important things that I need to know in order to you know to, to get my head around this. And, and I think it's actually a really great starting point for people that are interested in philosophy of mind and understanding and consciousness and so on to, to read that paper that you wrote. If I, if I said read one book on on, the, on modern cognitive science, I'd say look at Evan Thompson's Mind and Life. It, unfortunately, it's a bloody fat book, but it, it, I think it's that is a genius book. But I just there's two watching a number of your podcasts now, and I'm really enthralled by all of them. That 